Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello, this is Richard Lummis. Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Today, we're continuing our series based on Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Grecians and Roman. Today's subjects are the Corinthian uh, Timoleon and the Roman Aemilius Paulus. As before, Plutarch picks a Greek and a Roman to compare not just for leadership, but for moral and civic virtue as well. Plutarch was Greek, and he was writing at the time of the Julio-Claudian emperors, with forms of the Roman Republic still somewhat respected. As is becoming distressingly common, I knew very little about either of these men, or quite frankly, about the times they lived in. Tom, why don't we uh, start with a discussion of Timoleon? Sure, Richard. Uh, Timoleon was a member of the Corinthian oligarchy, and this is the first Corinthian that Plutarch has brought to our attention. Um, a well-known city-state within uh, Greece, but uh, I don't think too many people have really studied uh, the heroes or, or I guess, uh, known personalities of Timoleon. So I was not aware of him uh, as well. In the mid-360s uh, BC, uh, the brother of Timoleon took possession of the Acropolis of Corinth and made himself effectively the tyrant of the city. In response, Timoleon, who had early heroically saved his brother's life in battle, uh, and after pleading with him to desist, became involved in the uh, in his assassination. Most Corinthians, Corinthians approved of this conduct uh, as patriotic. However, uh, the tragic occurrence, uh, actual fracticide, uh, Abel, Cain, whatever you want to call it, the curses of his mother, uh, and the indignation of his fellow citizens drove him into a self-imposed early withdrawal from politics and civic life uh, for 20 years. He reappears around uh, 344 BC uh, uh, in the context of Sicily. Uh, the depredations that had occurred in uh, Sicily, I should say, uh, had been partially conquered by Greece, but there were also other powers there, namely Carthage and Rome. But uh, the depredations and decline in Syracuse caused the despots uh, Dionysus and his son uh, to have repeated conflicts with a powerful Carthaginian group and a group of Syracurans 
uh, appealed to Corinth, their mother city, for help. Corinth agreed to help, but its chief citizens declined to accept the seemingly hopeless task of establishing a stable government in the turbulent Syracuse. Timoleon uh, was at that point really an unknown voice in the Corinthian popular assembly, but he was chosen to undertake the mission, whether it was viewed as uh, something that uh, it was doomed to fail and they didn't want to, uh, he had nothing to lose or uh, this was some sort of punishment on him. It's not clear from the text, but he set sail for Sicily with seven ships, a few of the leading citizens of Corinth, and a small group of only 700 Greek mercenaries. He eluded a Carthaginian squadron and was able to land in Sicily where he met a friendly reception. Uh, one of the tyrants of Sicily was named Ikatas, and he was the tyrant of Leonitini. And he um, was uh, defeated by Timoleon uh, and driven back to Syracuse. After his initial success, Timoleon sent re four reinforcements and received reinforcements from Corinth and some additional northwestern Greek states. During the siege of Syracuse, the tyrant Dionysus II surrendered as a condition uh, was given safe conduct to Corinth, where he ended his life as a uh, private citizen. Iketas, however, now uh, applied to and received help from Carthage, uh, his former enemy, yet uh, this ill success aroused mutual suspicion, and the Carthaginians later abandoned him, and this made Timoleon the master of Syracuse. He began a program of restoration, beginning with a symbolic act of destroying the citadel constructed and used by tyrants to oppress the people of Syracuse and replacing it with a courthouse. He brought new settlers to depopulated Sicily from all over Greece and reestablished popular government on the basis of the democratic laws of Diocles. He, uh, uh, these reforms were so impressive and well thought of within in the island, they seem to have lasted up until the time of Augustus Caesar. The uh, Hicetus, however, uh, persuaded Carthage to send a huge army of a reportedly 70,000 men. Uh, <clears throat> Timoleon had only a levy of about 12,000 men. Most of them uh, were mercenaries. And he marched across the island to meet the Carthaginians, and he uh, was able to defeat uh, this foe. His victory was possible because the Carthaginians made a very poor river crossing so that only a, a small force of um, Carthaginians made it across. That was the elite part of the Carthaginian army. But uh, nevertheless, Timoleon was successful. And in a really interesting line, uh, Plutarch says that uh, Timoleon was also aided by a violent storm at the back of his troops of blinding Carthaginians. And I really wondered, Richard, if the Carthaginians saw that as a messenger or a message from the gods or some other divine intervention more than just a raging storm. Uh, Timoleon uh, was able to take control fully of Syracuse and the Sicilian, uh, the Greek, Greek Sicily, and he uh, instituted democratic rule, although he did have wide powers as a supreme commander. 
He invited settlers from mainland Greece to assist in the repopulation of Syracuse and other uh, Sicilian cities. And Greek Sicily enjoyed a recovery in its uh, economy and culture. Uh, Timoleon retired into private life shortly after the goals he set out to accomplish were met. He did remain universally admired for his brilliant victories, his moderation, and the restoration of democracy after nearly half a century of tyranny suffering a near economic collapse by Greek Sicily. However, even after his retirement, so great was his esteem of his Sicilian countrymen and as fellow Corinthians, that uh, when important issues were discussed in Sicily, uh, a blind Timoleon was carried to the assembly to give his opinion, which was usually accepted. He was buried at the cost of the citizens of Syracuse, who erected a monument in his memory, surrounded by porticoles, and even a gymnasium called the Timoleon Tion. So uh, I would say a very interesting character, as I mentioned, one that I did not uh, was not familiar with. We I, I tend to forget the uh, the flux of the, of the Mediterranean before the Roman uh, Empire, really, with Carthage and the Greeks um, and the Romans all all struggling for control of Sicily for a period of several hundred years, really. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Um, our other character today is uh, Lucius Aemilius Paulus Macedonicus, and he was the son of the consul Lucius Paulus, who had been defeated and killed by Hannibal at the Battle of Cannae when uh, Aemilius was still a boy. He's born around 229 BC and to an aristocratic and influential Roman family, the Aemilii Pauli, and he followed the usual initial steps on the cursus honorum, serving 10 years in the military before being elected he died in 193, and then Praetor in 191. He's also appointed an augur, whose, uh, which duties he carried out with notable scrupulousness and care. He campaigned against the Lusitanians, who occupied what's now Portugal, uh, being honored by being preceded by 12 axes, which was customary for a consul rather than the usual six, which had been more appropriate for a praetor. Uh, he won two major battles, 250 cities surrendered to him and swore fidelity to Rome. And unusually for the time, he failed to enrich himself during this campaign. And Plutarch comments that he was but remiss in making money. And after his death, there was but barely enough left to answer his wife's dowry. Despite the successful campaign, for some reason, he was not elected consul until uh, nearly 10 years later in 182. At some point during this time, he divorced his first wife, Papiria, who had borne him two sons who were adopted into other aristocratic families. The older boy was adopted into the Fabia family and became Quintus Fabius Maximus Emilianus, and the younger was adopted into the Scipii family by Publius Cornelius Scipio, becoming Publius Cornelius Scipio Emilianus. He remarried, and although we don't know the second wife's name, she bore him two sons, whose names we also don't know. He also had at least two daughters, one who married Cato's son, and the other uh, married a man named Aelus Tubero, who was quite poor. 181, he led a campaign against the Ligurians in northwestern Italy, 
who were pirates. Um, Amelius had an army of only about 8,000 men, but he defeated a Ligurian army reported to a total of 40,000 people. It was part of Roman policy at the time to maintain the Ligurians in place as a buffer against the Gauls invading Italy. So after their defeat, the Ligurians surrendered to Aemilius, uh, depending on his mercy. He, he raised only the fortifications in the cities and then gave them back to Ligurians, but he did confiscate all their larger ships to in inhibit piracy, and he freed great numbers of prisoners they had taken. He wanted to become consul for a second time, but was passed over, so he devoted himself to his duties as, as an augur and to educate his children, unusually by instructors from Greece. He was apparently quite a, quite a Grecophile. About this time, the Antigonid dynasty still ruled Macedon. Um, the, uh, King Philip had lost a battle to, battle to the Roman Titus Flaminius and became a tributary of Rome, but he subsequently resented this and he secretly gathered arms, grain, and money intending to uh, start another war. However, he died Plutarch says probably of grief, since he had unjustly put his son Demetrius to death due to lies spread by his other son, Perseus, and was succeeded by Perseus. Perseus started the war with Rome and had initial success, despite Plutarch's opinion that he was incompetent to carry out his designs through want of courage and the viciousness of a character in which, among faults and diseases of various sorts, covetousness bore the chief place. He routed Publius Licinius, forced the second consul, Hostilius, to retreat. Uh, he engaged in negotiations with the Gauls living near the Danube and inside of the Illyrians, who occupied what's now, or what was, Yugoslavia, uh, to join him in the war. As a result of all these developments, Aemilius was recalled to the consulship despite being almost 60 years old. He was elected unanimously, and instead of the customary selection of provinces by lots, he was immediately given command of the Macedonian War. Plutarch attributes a lot of his success to simple good fortune, but also to Perseus's greed as he successfully cheated a mercenary army of 20,000 Bastardani and then uh, Genthius, king of the Illyrians, resulting in the Bastardani abandoning him and then Genthius being defeated by the Romans. After meeting at the base of Mount Olympus, the two armies did not engage. Um, Aemilius was criticized for that. Uh, he tried attacking an unguarded pass um, at which Perseus seems to have panicked and retreated to the city of Pydna, where the ground was more suitable for the use of the Macedonian phalanx. As Aemilius approached, the young officers were all for an immediate attack, but Aemilius said the men were too weary from the long march and set up a fortified camp instead. There was a lunar eclipse that night, which seems to have disheartened the Macedonians, but as Augur Aemilius uh, took it as a favorable sign, next day, he waited till afternoon to give battle so the sun would be at his back and in the eyes of his enemies. Polybius claims Perseus abandoned his army early on, but a man named Posidinius denies that particular charge. The Romans initially had trouble dealing with the thicket of Sarissus or the very long spears and the phalanx. But as the uh, phalanxes maneuvered, gaps opened between them, and Aemilius split his men into smaller cohorts that could attack the openings destroying the cohesion of the phalanxes and causing the Macedonians to break and run, except for 3,000 chosen men who fought to the last. 25,000 Macedonians were killed, and Perseus fled, abandoned by almost everyone, to the island of Samothrace, where he sought refuge in the temple of Castor and Pollux. Unable to escape, he surrendered, throwing himself at Amelius's feet, uttering unmanly cries and petitions. 
this uh, episode is kind of confusing to me. The Senate ordered Aemilius to take the army and sack 70 cities in Epirus and enslaved 150,000 people. But apparently the point was to get uh, loot for the soldiers. And it was a resounding, a resounding failure at that because the soldiers only got 11 rockets each out of thunder. On his return to Rome, Servius Galba tried to deny Aemilius a triumph based in part on the unhappiness of the soldiers with the amount of plunder they'd obtained. But Marcus Servilius made an oration that chained the people, and the triumph proceeded with Perseus led in chains. Tragically, his two sons by his second wife both died, one five days before the triumph and the other three days after, which Aemilius bore with uh, stoicism. He became censor, but then suddenly sickened and died. And at his funeral, Spaniards, Ligurians, and Macedonians all carried his beer calling him the benefactor and preserver of their countries. His total estate was only 370,000 drachmas, which he left to his two surviving sons, Scipio the younger one giving his share to his brother as the Africanus family was already wealthy. The amount of treasure seized from Macedonia was such the Romans did not have to pay taxes until the time of the first war between Antony and Caesar. Um, really interesting career. Um, but what do you think about the comparison between these two men? Well, Richard, after uh, listening to your uh, recitation, uh, I wonder if, in addition to the great military victories of both of these men, uh, Plutarch was really trying to touch on uh, uh, one of the themes he's had throughout this um, Plutarch's lives or the parallel lives, and that's corruption or incorruptibility. Uh, he comments on that in his comparison of the two, um, but in listening, uh, once again, to your recitation and, and then kind of reviewing, revisiting mine as well, it's clear that uh, both of these men were well thought of uh, from that perspective. And in addition to personal courage, which I think they both had, uh, they also had a high personal ethic and, and morality. Interestingly, um, Plutarch attributes Aemilius's uh, incorruptibility or, or I would say moral and ethical foundation to the laws and customs of Rome. And I was wondering if there he might have really been trying to write to a, a Roman audience, uh, uh, specifically Augustus, to uh, uh, somehow uh, send some sunlight uh, into Augusta because he really focused on Timoleon as uh, – uh, in, in internal factors, uh, I don't know how you, you know, the, the fracticide obviously is, is very disturbing. Um, and, but in the way it's presented in Plutarch, it was almost a patriotic action by, uh, Timoleon because of, um, his brother becoming a tyrant. Um, the other theme I got really was, um, and once again, from Plutarch's comparison, he said that, let me quote this, if the spirit is neither, a spirit should neither be spoiled or elated. And I wondered if that was not a, a proto-Stoic um, phrase, because the Stoics have been around for long before Plutarch, but it seemed to me to be almost uh, a Stoicism or something that Marcus Aurelius might say. Uh, so, we really seem to focus on, once again, we, we did focus on the military aspect, and and both men were, were very good generals, uh, Timoleon with his uh, defeat of the Carthaginians, 
whether by hook, crook, or divine, you know, divine inspiration from a storm behind him. Nevertheless, he took 12,000 men into battle and against 70,000 and won. And, uh, but both of these men uh, really did things beyond the battlefield that uh, I certainly thought Plutarch uh, was trying to celebrate. Uh, once again, it was not clear if he was trying to have greater commentary for the time he lived and he was writing. But uh, I thought that was a really interesting um, uh, ca- uh, characters to put in to Plutarch's life, but particularly those two. I think that's a great point. And I think um, what struck me about Emilius also was being a Grecophile, um, that Plutarch still attributed all of his virtues to being Roman virtues uh, rather than Greek. And of course, uh, Plutarch very carefully contrasts the uh, stoic firmness of Emilius within accepting the deaths of his sons uh, about, the t- about the same time as his triumph with the behavior of Perseus, who was completely unmanned by uh, defeat and was of a vicious character anyway. Um, but so I, I do think that's an interesting point. And I think we do see that periodically, especially in the Plutarch comparisons that there, he's trying to draw object lessons on, on virtue for um, his audience of the elite in Rome at the time. I thought it was also interesting, though, that Timoleon's uh, political reforms were so long-lasting. Um, and you pointed out that they lasted almost to the time of Augustus. But I'm, I'm not sure what it was about them that made them so so successful. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, but it, it, it did not bring uh, an era of peace to Sicily, as, as I tried to uh, talk about in terms of uh, the Greek invasion of 13, or 315 BC. So there was still conflict going on. Nevertheless, whatever those reforms might have been, I suppose in the area of democracy or democratic values that allowed the Sicurans and the Sicilians, uh, the greater Sicilians, to keep those reforms in place uh, must have been Quite dramatic. There's one other point I'd like to raise, Richard, and and you really didn't get a sense of it from Plutarch, but uh, I was familiar with Emilius, and more more importantly, his victory in Greece. Number one, it forever, uh, uh, well, it cemented the Roman rule of Greece, obviously, but it was also sort of the death knell of the uh, the Greek phalanx as a fighting machine because the Roman formation uh, showed how flexibility um, in incorporating certain uh, Greek phalanx techniques uh, could lead to uh, a greater mobility, and uh, obviously they defeated the Greeks. It's also the end of uh, Greek influence in the Eastern Mediterranean, and in terms of historical battles, uh, this one is, is regularly talked about. Uh, because it, it literally was the end of, of Greece, as uh, the Greek city-states had been for perhaps three or 400 years, and uh, they were co- brought completely under Roman rule. But also, it was really the end of a, of a fighting strategy or a fighting machine in the form of the Greek phalanx that had not only dictated how battles would be fought, but um, almost universally was successful uh, that Alexander was able to take, obviously, into into India and nearly conquer uh, that part of the world. So the significance uh, cannot really be underestimated from the Third Macedonian War in terms of now 
Rome was was it in the Mediterranean, not the Eastern Mediterranean, the Mediterranean. So um, I really didn't get a sense of that from from Plutarch, but I really wanted to to point out the significance of what uh, Amelius did in Greece. Yeah, and it seems to have been sort of spur of the moment. It was not a planned thing, but he recognized the opportunity and and then on the fly uh, split up his men into smaller groups which were enabled, which were able to flank and then eventually uh, take take the phalanxes from the rear. Um, so yeah, that, that's a that's a great point. Um, the other thing I'd like to mention about Aemilius's career was the the training of the cursus honorum that the Romans went through. Uh, by spending 10 years in the military before you were elected to any of the magistracies, I think they they helped develop these people and develop their leadership skills along the way. And then there, were, there was a it was a fairly rigid series of steps um, with the different jobs that gave you different experiences. But uh, it certainly seems to have worked out very well in Emilius's uh, case, combined, of course, with his uh, personal incorruptibility. Excellent point as well. Well, I, th- I hope you enjoyed today's uh, discussion of two of lesser-known people um, from Plutarch's lives. Uh, I certainly found it interesting. And I hope you'll join us when we continue next time on 12 O'Clock High with Tom Fox and Richard Lemons. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. I hope you will join us again next week where we take up the Greek Pericles and the Roman Fabius Maximus in episode three of our series on Plutarch's Lives. This series on Plutarch's Lives on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>